0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com, okay? So if you want your questions answered, send them to them to me at that email, and I will get them. If you leave them in the comments section of this video or any other videos, I may or may not see it, and I may or may not feel inclined to copy-paste it into my question queue, but if you send me to me by email, I will absolutely get it in there, and eventually <laughs> I will get to it. All right, so um, I said this at the beginning of my podcast this week. I'm going to reiterate it here because a lot of you guys don't watch my podcast, um, even the cool ones with John a. Tack, like the one this week. Um, but... Uh, this, this COVID-19 thing is happening, it is real, and I'm going to make a little comment about it, and um, I'm not doing a political rant here, please listen to what I have to say. I am a content creator, I hope I am an influencer in some fashion, and I feel it's re- my responsibility to say things like this because I want to create a positive impact out there. And there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of panic, and, and a lot, a lot of false information flying around out there about COVID 19 or the so called uh, coronavirus or novel coronavirus and what it's all about and how to take care of it, how to identify the symptoms of it, what to do if you do have those symptoms. You know, testing in the United States is a disaster right now, and there are reasons for that. They are not good reasons, they are bad reasons. But it is the world that we live in and the situation that we're in right now. So we're going to have to just deal with the way things are. And they're not great. But they're not all horrible and awful and terrible either, okay? For most people, we're going to be experiencing, if you get this thing, you're going to experience something like the flu and it's going to come and go and then you'll be immune and everything's going to be fine. And for the vast majority of people out there, that's going to be the case. There are other people who are not going to be so fortunate and there's, I don't mean to be, you know, unemotional about it or anything. I feel very strongly about this, and I want to minimize as much loss as we can. So I'm going to please implore you to ignore cable news entirely, ignore your political leaders entirely on this, especially here in the United States, where they are getting it wrong a lot and instead please go to the CDC or the WHO or the NHS websites or the official science websites of your country, wherever you are, and read those and listen to those. Those are the official authorized like scientific sites, medical professionals, Those are the people you need to be listening to directly, not via your Uncle Joe or Sean Hannity or anybody else or, you know, Rachel Maddow for that matter. I don't care. Those people don't know what they're talking about. They are merely middlemen that are passing on information. That's why I'm not going to pass on any information about this except to say, please go look at those sites, get the accurate information, and act accordingly. Okay? There's... um, there's some pretty ridiculous stuff going on right now, and the simplicity of that is that in emergency situations where there are threats to survival, people are going to act in ways that are pretty nuts. And, you know, those, those same people who, in a rational, calm state of mind, can say one thing, will turn around and do completely crazy ball things when the adrenaline starts pumping into the system and, you know, the fight or flight kicks in. Some degree, and it's a spectrum of kicking in, it's you know, but it when it starts going, other parts of your brain start turning on and do your thinking for you, and those are not the fully rational parts of your brain that you're familiar with. So, I'm saying this because people need to understand that they think they're going to act a certain way when it comes to emergency situations, but when things get real. People often act very differently from how they think they're going to act. And this is why it is so important to get the facts and follow the guidelines and rules that we're being given right now. As as, um, difficult as that might seem, I want to point out that the social psychology behind epidemics, what goes on in our heads and with herds, with mobs of people, and how they act during these times of crisis are understood. The people who are giving us the information and guidelines and advice on this are people who have studied this for years. They are as expert on this stuff as I am on Scientology, and they know how people are going to respond. And so they're trying to tell people to do things that some people go, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it it does in the bigger picture if you actually understand all the facts behind everything. So Anyway, that's why I'm saying, please go get yourself informed on that. I've probably rambled on too much about it, but I care about this a lot and I care about you guys. And I want you to survive this. And there is no reason you can't if you take all the proper precautions and take care of yourself. And that's really what I want. And I want to do whatever I can to contribute to saving lives. And if that means you know, scaring you into your wits instead of scaring you out of your wits. That's, you know, that's kind of where this goes. And um, and I borrow that phrase from Michael Osterholm from Joe Rogan's podcast last week, which you should definitely watch if you haven't. And I will actually link to that podcast below because that was a great source of initial information for me. And from that, I've been able to build up more information on this from the um, official sites. And again, Michael Osterholm is not some dweeb who doesn't know what he's talking about. He's um, quite an expert in this. So those are the sources of information you should be going to right now. This is not a matter of differing opinions, differing ideas, different viewpoints about things. We're talking about real science now, and and it's very important that you pay a lot of attention to that. And that's all I'm going to say about it. Now that's over to you guys. Okay, so... Having said all that, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now because you guys have asked me some pretty cool ones this week and I can't wait to answer them. Kevin Zay, have you seen the latest Reckless Ben video with them projecting Scientology sucks onto Big Blue? What are your thoughts? Have you been in communication with them at all since they did it? Do these types of actions help or hurt the cause? And Eve Ritchie, what do you think about the Reckless Ben Scientology stunt? Okay guys, I knew it was coming. I knew exactly what they were going to do because they told me, which is why we put the GoFundMe up and and or they did and I endorsed it here on my channel because I knew that that was going to happen and I was really looking forward to it and they did a really great job. They really, they really pulled it off with excellent flying colors all around and I could not approve more of what they did. And I'm going to explain why because I know that I've said in the past that, you know, protesting and going out and being mean and all that not a good idea and it's not. I stand by everything I've said. Um, The reason why I think that what Ben and Mike did was so special and different from what other people have done in the past um, and why I think that this kind of a positive approach to, um, dealing with Scientology, even if it's, you know, I mean, positive approach, I know that's a little bit, uh, when they put in Scientology sucks on the side of a building, but, uh, but Scientology does suck. I mean, that's the truth, you know, from almost any objective metric you care to look at Scientology, it does suck. So the, the con of the situation is that you're offending a bunch of Scientologists the pros of the situation are that you are spectacularly uh, punking them, right? And and I thought it was really well done. And the reason why I think Mike and Ben were so good about this is because they did not do it from a mean, evil, nasty, spirited place. They came at this in an impressively good w- w- almost even respectful in a way, kind of way. And I say this because if you watch the last video, you can see how they interact with the police, with other Scientologists who come and confront them about what they're doing. And, you know, good on the Scientologists, I guess, over the years, I guess they've learned to not walk up to people and ask them if how many babies they've destroyed or killed that week, like Jenna Elfman did years ago. And they didn't come and just, like, get in their face about it. And that was... That was an interesting response from Scientology. They are they are really trying to 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 temper their harsh public imagery that they have created themselves in the past with all of the insults and antagonism and and you know coming out with fists flying when when critics would come around protesting Scientology. Um, so those days seem to be kind of—they're chilling now, man. They just—they'll just stand there with the cameras and film you. And they were trying to engage, and they were engaging, and they—and Mike and Ben and the other guys it kind of engaged back in a in a pretty good way. You could see that Mike and Ben's actions also brought some of the Scientology. Some of the neighbors around the Scientology complex out, and they were fully supportive of what Mike and Ben were doing. They were like, "Yeah, this is great. I've had family disconnected. I know people that Scientology is disconnected forcefully, and you know, and they and they made themselves uh, known, and they weren't shy about saying any of this to the Scientologists that were coming around too, and and good on them for doing it, right? But again. It was all kept pretty chill, for the most part, and I really liked that, you know? And they also obviously had a ton of fun doing it, because they didn't just project it on Big Blue, they went around to all the orgs they could find around L.A., and they really got the maximum amount of use out of that equipment, I was, I, I liked that. And they got shots of all of it, of course, I saw the pictures before the video was even released, when they were releasing it on social media. And I just thought it was awesome. So I think that's the kind of thing that I would love to see more of in the future. You know, it's not illegal, it's not um, shaming people directly, like to their face, and, and creating this like antagonistic sort of thing. Obviously, Scientologists are going to be offended. But, um, you know, at this point, with the, with the, the few that are kind of left in there, I mean, what kind of headspace are the, are the people who are still in Scientology at this point? Where do they have to be? Because it is impossible at this point in time, and here's a more general, broader point about all this, it, at least as far as I think I see it. I could be totally wrong about this, but here's, uh, here's how I see it. I believe that at this point, there are only two kinds of people who are in Scientology who still are in there. Um, It it is, I I believe it is impossible for any existing Scientologist to not be aware of at least some part of the criticism that we have been blasting out to the world for the last 10, um, 15 years or so, right? Right. like, there's a lot of it out there, and Scientology's name truly is mud in the world at large. So, Scientologists who try to reach out and, and you know, promulgate the religion are running right into this. And so, it is just impossible that Scientologists don't know what's going on in the world at large now. Sea Org members are the exception. I'm not, uh, you know, Sea Org members, the information control is still very, very intense, and I don't know that SeaWorld members necessarily know about what's going on out here, but I think the regular public Scientologists do, and I think probably a lot of the staff do too, which is why you see their numbers shrinking. So, two people, two kinds of people left. What, who, who are they? One fanatics, full on fanatics, people who are not going to listen to a single thing that anyone has to say about Scientology because they are absolutely convinced in a very, very black and white way of thinking that Scientology is the only answer and everybody else has it dead wrong. And they're the kind of person who's willing to stand, you know, and face the millions and say, I'm right and you're all wrong and not have a shred of doubt in their mind about it. That's a pretty sad place to be no matter what cause you're fighting for or uh, ascribing to. So, I think that forms the bulk of who's left in Scientology are people who are really in a fanatical state of mind, or the people who are their immediate friends or family who don't want to, for some reason, disconnect from those Scientologists, those fanatics. They're, they're, it's their father, it's their mother, it's their son, it's their daughter, it's whatever, it's their, it's their business partner, it's somebody who they can't, they don't want to rock the, that boat, they don't want to disturb that because their own life depends too much on this other person and the relationship that they have with them. So they can't endanger that, so they won't, so they just toe the line and try to do the best they can and show up at events or, you know, take some phone calls or pay for some services or whatever it is they're doing to try to, you know, pass the loyalty test that Scientology is constantly throwing their way. And I've heard uh, from people who are still in that this is becoming more frequent, that it's becoming less and less acceptable in that world to try to fly under the radar or be the person who's just, you know, yeah, you're cool, will would not even agree to disagree, just, yeah, it's good, I like it, I'm just not really down for doing it right now, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, they're not really down with that passive sort of, Membership uh, a lot now. They're pushing harder and harder on this as they circle those wagons and try to bring everybody in and fanaticize them. I guess you could say. So that's how I see Scientology right now. I, I, you know, that's kind of what makes sense to me as to who would be left in there and why they'd be there. And also, that also speaks, of course, to why it would be such a small number, because you know, statistically speaking, 10, 20, 30,000 people fanatically believing in something, or let's say let's say that uh, two-thirds of Scientologists, I'm just pulling these numbers out of wherever, but let's say two-thirds of existing Scientologists are these fanatics, and then a third of them are the people who are connected to the fanatics for some reason, and I, I you know, like I said, I'm just kind of making these numbers up, but let's say two out of three of them are that way, um, you know, statistically speaking, that's not, you can find all kinds of people believing in all kinds of crazy, nonsensical things uh, in, in numbers like that, that from a certain point of view might think are a lot of people, but from the global perspective, it's nothing. It's statistically an irrelevant number almost. So, you know, that's that's kind of how I look at it now, is Scientology is literally statistically irrelevant in the big picture of the, of the world. But it, um, you know, it's a great thing to use, for me now, I, I look at it more as a, a great example of just how off the rails people's, you know, people can go and, um, and, and the consequences. It's a good object lesson, I guess I'm saying, in fanaticism, in, in religious indoctrination, um, in propaganda, in mind control, in hypnosis. I mean, there's a lot of levels to it. And I think that's why it's still worthy of being talked about and discussed and why I am continuing to do this. So anyway, that's, um, there's, a, there's a reckless bend to a broader uh, statement on the matter. And there you go. R.R. Smith. It just occurred to me that I listened to a video that said the Sea Org quarantines the sick together. I have the idea that they are in a big room like old pictures of sick wards. Are they still doing that? Are they connected to the news enough to quarantine correctly, or will they deal with the fallout instead, and what will that look like? How does the average public look at it? Okay, well here's what I can tell you about this. I knew, I, I knew this question was going to come up eventually, and here we are. So um, I don't know what they're doing right now at FLAG or at PAC Base or in the other Sea bases in regards to this. I, I have no inside knowledge. But I can tell you what happened when H1N1, the norovirus, hit the pack base. I was on the RPF, and it hit the pack base hard. So this was in the, um, what? I don't remember exactly what year, in the 2000s, but um, uh, mid-2000s. And when it hit, okay, so I was on the RPF. So I was already sequestered away from the rest of the base. So I wasn't in on any of the briefings or... Uh, what was being cited as to what was going on? I just observed what happened, and I, by the way, did not get sick. Uh, I was a very—I was part of a very small percentage. I like maybe fifteen percent, twenty percent of the base. I think um, did not get sick uh, on H on neurovirus. It was it was bad. I mean, that thing swept through pack base, and people were. It was a weird disease. It was a weird sickness because you talk to a guy at one o'clock and he's running around doing his, you know, doing his hard labor and everything's fine. And three, four hours later, he's puking his guts out and can't stand and is on his back and is just out of it. I mean, it was that fast that it hit and it hit hard and it hit a lot of people all at once. And at first there were active measures to try to keep such people away, but we pretty quickly realized that it came on so quickly and so devastatingly that you didn't know when the person was actually, you know, like you couldn't tell right away, similarly to coronavirus, whether the person was sick or not until it was too late. They were showing symptoms and boom, then, they, then everybody around them was sick and, and it spread like wildfire. And, um, and so then it was a couple weeks of everybody just kind of coping they were plastic i mean this is this is a former hospital the the, the pack base the big blue was a cedar sinai hospital so the main building is a bunch of rooms but they don't have enough rooms to put individuals into those rooms there's like i don't know there's there's a, many hundreds of people maybe maybe a thousand or more on the pack base I, I mean i never really got a body count i think it was around 800 to 1000 people when i was there um then you throw in all the people over at the Hollywood Guarantee Building, many of whom live in in the pack base. Um they did do a separation at a certain point, trying to separate out the the, the ranks and the and the, the different levels in terms of having them live apart too. But there was still lots of crossover. People get married in the Sea org, and then people get promoted, and then you got one person in one org, another person in a higher org. And um So you'd you'd have people from there coming over at home at night, and then they'd get sick and, you know, or spread it around to the people over at the HGB and vice versa. And it just, you know, so it kind of went through the whole Scientology Sea Org community real fast. Um, And they were not at all prepared for this. I mean, not at all. So what ended up happening was cots purchased, people laying in, in the hallways of the complex, of, of every floor of the of Big Blue, there were people um, in the bunk beds in the dorms. There were people. Um, there were like sick dorms, and pretty soon, like all the almost all the dorms were sick dorms, because it was so, there were so many people. There was plastic sheeting hung up with tape in the hallways to sort of keep people out. There was a lot, a lot of bleach being used all over the place. It was constant, right? There were constantly people spraying. Like they were going through every couple hours, if I remember right, just spraying every surface down, right? And this was the this was the, the lot of the people who were, well, you know, was caring for these people, bringing them food, dealing with them, cleaning it up. I mean, you know, caring for them. There there were a few people uh, in the Sea Org who had previous medical experience who were utilized, there were there were nurses and, and I I don't remember anybody stepping up as a doctor so to speak, but um, but there were care you know there were people who were caring for the for the sick. Um, nobody was really I don't recall until after the fact of this a whole lot of effort being made to try to find out who these people were pts to right the idea in Scientology is that if you get sick at all. It's because you're PTS, a potential trouble source, and that means you're connected in some way or somehow influenced or re-stimulated by a suppressive person, okay, a big bad guy, some antisocial in your life, or somebody who's not a suppressive person, but they really remind you of a suppressive person, right? Uh, You could have had some bully in the fourth grade who, you know, beat your butt every day and took your lunch money, and that would be, to you, a suppressive person and so now there's a senior you have who talks to you the same way as that bully did, and so they remind you of the suppressive, and so now you're PTS. It could be that, you know, kind of loose of a connection. Um, so, uh, which means, of course, you can see pretty clearly if you think critically about that for a second that anybody can be PTS to anybody else at any time for any reason almost. So. You know, the, you know this kind of stuff doesn't really hold a lot of water. But this was Hubbard's philosophy, and this is what Scientologists believe. So um, there wasn't a lot of attention being put on that till after people were well, and then they were getting interviews and you know finding out who they were, PTS to and all that. But for the most part, during the the the, the main you know wave of of horribleness that, that hit the base, everybody was really just trying to cope and deal. And people couldn't keep food down. I mean, it was, it was really scary. Um, and I, of course, the well people who were not directly taking care of these folks were trying to stay as far away from them as possible, which was impossible in the RPF spaces and pretty much impossible on the base as a whole it's a tight-knit group. Everything is really close together, right? And the dorms are atrocious. I mean, the beds then and now were stacked up three, four high in these rooms. Uh, You know, too many people in too small a space, and that's the Sea Org. So um, now with corona, I'm anticipating that they will probably I'm hoping that there are still folks around there who remember what happened when the neurovirus went down, it wasn't that long ago, and have taken some precautions. You know, they are, the thing that Sea Org has going for it is they are cleaning fanatics. So that, if anything, is probably what would prevent the spread of the virus through the base as quickly as, say, the neurovirus went through, is they will enforce hand cleaning, sanitizing, keeping, you know, they will spray down walls, floors, they will mop, they will use bleach everywhere. Um, They will take those precautions, no no question about it. and, And some of those precautions will help. No doubt about that either, right? So I don't think they're completely divorced from reality. There are people on that base who truly care about all the other people on that base, and they won't want them all getting sick, if for no other reason it cuts across the income lines. But more importantly, Sea Org members actually do care about other Sea Org members at a human level. So they will take precautions, and they will try to keep from getting the disease, but they are hampered by the PTS stuff the belief that you only get sick if you're pts so if you're not pts you won't get sick that's a that's a, a bug not a feature right of scientology belief because they will take chances that they shouldn't because of that belief they oh, i'm not pts i don't have to wear gloves i'm P- i'm not pts i don't have to wash my hands every time i eat or whatever you know they don't they're not going to Um, You're going to get all that same level of stupidity that you get out in the real world. In the Sea Org, especially, you're going to have a lot of victim mentality where, or anti victim mentality, where if you get sick or if you're coughing or phlegmatic or somehow there's an issue, you're going to get told, toughen up, you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, let's go. We can't afford to have you off post. You're too important. There's too much work to do, blah, 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 blah. So they absolutely will keep people on their jobs longer than they should. And there will be people who will act like martyrs because they think that that's the good moral thing to do as a Sea Org member. And they will overwork themselves. So you get some of that. Um, So I don't know. You know, I, I hope that they are paying a lot of attention to what's going on. They do have access to the media when they need it and I hope that they are taking standard precautions, but given the tightness of the quarters and the closeness of the, you know, of the spaces and the interactions that are the Sea Org, I don't see any other you know, thing except that this thing is gonna tear through that base just like norovirus did. But you know they could surprise me, so that's uh, what I can tell you about all that, and there you go. Joe Grease, what is the clay table processing on the ProTRS course? Okay, this is an interesting thing. And this is a little bit of Scientology, not minutiae exactly because it's a mainline service that almost all Scientologists do. but it's it's a it's a little weird. Okay, so um, for those of you who don't know anything about this, uh, let's see. Let's start from the Pro TRs course. What does that mean? It's the professional training routines course. TR stands for training routines or training regimens, and those are the drills that they do in order to learn how to communicate, okay? It's basically it. There's five drills, TR0, one, uh, TR 1, 2, 3, and 4, and TR0 is divided into three drills. It's TR0, um, there's OTTR0, TR0, TR and TR0 bull bait, okay? Kind of walked through those TRs before. Um, They're just drills in communicating, okay? So I'm not going to necessarily break all those down right now. We're going to talk about the clay table processing that was made part of this course in 1990. At the end of 1990 is when this was released into into the world of Scientology. Hubbard had actually developed it and uh, worked out what it was going to be back in 1979, he made a film for this course showing how to do these drills, but he also showed in the film how to do this clay table processing. But none of us knew what the hell they were showing us, except a bunch of people making stuff with clay, and we were like, what's this? Because it wasn't yet part of the course until it was released in 1990. Uh, I, d- I first did the course in 1985 so uh, in Santa Barbara. So anyway, when this stuff was released, I was a staff member. I went down to L.A., I specifically trained on how to do it, and then I went back to Santa Barbara and I delivered this new part of the Pro-TRs course. So from that point on, you would start the course, you would do a bunch of theory study where you would read a bunch of stuff about L. Ron Hubbard's ideas about communication, and then before you did the TR drills, where you're sitting there staring at each other for hours on end and trying to push each other's buttons and on all of that stuff that we've talked about at Infinitum. Before you would get into those drills, you do the clay table processing. Now, processing in Scientology is another word for auditing. Uh, Addressing stress, trauma, difficulties unresolved from your past that are affecting you now is a a summary way of of saying what auditing is. It's it's actually not, you know, it's not an effective way of doing that, and it doesn't produce the results people are told it does, it does something, <laughs> what it does is kind of interesting to different people, um, and it often creates a euphoric state, which is why people can get semi-addicted to it, and then they you know, keep putting the money down, and that's Scientology's claim to fame. So clay table processing is where instead of sitting on the meter and being asked questions and answering them... Uh, Or instead of standing and being walked around a room or being told to pick things up, which is objective auditing, instead of that, it's clay table auditing, where you take your thoughts in response to a command or a question, and you put them in clay. You actually make a clay representation of what you're thinking is the answer to this question. So let's say, for example, you're asked... um, Make a clay, And these are called clay representations to differentiate them from clay demonstrations, which is what's done in study. I've talked about this in, in videos before where you make clay figures and clay concepts and you lay it all out in clay in three dimensions so you can show that you understand some principle in Scientology. That's a clay demonstration. A clay representation is a representation of something in your mind that answers the auditing question. Now, I didn't look up, and I don't remember right off the top of my head all of the various parts of the clay table processing that are done on the TRS course, but I can tell you there are five parts to it, five distinct steps, each one of which has its own specific end result, which the person has to somehow voice before they'll finish that section. So you start on section one, and let's say there are three or four different commands in section one that have you making clay representations of if i remember right like affinity or reality or communication right like re, like make a clay representation make a clay representation of a time you had affinity or something i mean like i said i probably should have looked the commands up first but it's something like this it's a, it has to do with the arc triangle and then um, then the next section has to do with the krc triangle knowledge responsibility and control and then the next clay representation section has to do with um, cycles of action and time, you know, where you're starting, stopping, continuing things. And then I don't remember the last two. The last one had to do with communication itself. You had to actually put a full communication in clay with all its parts. And Hubbard has like 20 different parts that, to, to communication. Uh, Okay, for example, uh, it's not just you saying something to somebody. It's you are cause. The person you're talking to is effect. So you have two parts. You have cause and you have effect. And then you have a distance between them. However small, there's always a distance between them. So it's cause, distance, effect. The person communicating has intention to communicate. They intend to communicate something. And they have attention. They are paying attention to the person they're communicating to in some fashion, right? They're looking at him or somehow they have some attention, right? So there's cause, distance, effect, with intention, attention, duplication, because the person who's receiving the communication has to duplicate it, and thereby understand it. Okay, so these are just different parts. And there's a whole bunch of other parts, too. Uh, And all of them go into clay as part of doing this. The idea with clay representations is that you are taking something, communication difficulties or problems or issues you've had in the past, and you're putting them in clay. And the auditor and the supervisor, there's a supervisor who comes around and checks it out. And he just looks at it and says, well, here's what I see. And if what he sees is an accurate description of what you were trying to show, then you get to carry on. If it's not, if he can't see it, if he goes, well, I don't really get what's going on here exactly. It looks like the mom is yelling at the kid, but then the kid is turning around and running away, and I don't, I don't really see what's, uh, is this supposed to be communicating? I don't know. I'm not quite tracking with what's happening. And if he can't see it, then the, the person who's doing the clay representation has to fix it or adjust it so that he can. Probably not a really good idea in therapy. But this isn't therapy, this is Scientology, let's be clear about that. So, person has to make their adjustments and then the supervisor comes back over and looks at it and uh, gives it a pass or whatever and then they move on to the next step. And this goes, and they repeat these steps until, like I said, at each of these five parts, there is a specific end result that is being looked for. And I don't really, I mean, I think the last one was something about being able to communicate, you know, whenever you want. But there were other things. Like, for example, the third part I remember had something to do with time. It had to do with, like, you could be cause over time through how you are aware of what are called cycles of action in Scientology, right? Start, change, stop. So you can, you can create time through this, you know, being aware of cause, distance, effect, or something. And if that doesn't make any sense to you, well, in retrospect, it doesn't make any sense to me either. But at the time, it did, you know. But now I look back on it, and I just go, that doesn't reconcile at all. And what can I say? Some of these things just can't be explained well, <laughs> at least not by me at this point. But, um, but that kind of thing. And, and again, you have to say it out loud, or write it down in a success story. So you're often asked... During the the course of doing this clay table processing, let's say you do a representation, and then, um, oh, yeah, that's right. Most of the commands were do this representation, like, of affinity, and then the next command was do a representation of how this applies to you or something, right? And then you're asked if you have any successes uh, to write down, write them down, and you might write a success story. Oh, yeah. I can see how I can be closer to people now, or, oh, I see how my failure to listen to other people has caused communication difficulties. Like, there, there can be honest realizations or epiphanies along the way that can help people out. These don't tend to be rather permanent, though. They tend to be in the moment, right? I mean, you have some guy who goes, oh, yeah, I don't listen to people so well. Maybe I should do better at that. And then, you know, a month later, he's like yelling and screaming at you and not listening to a word you say. So, that's what I mean when I say these things are kind of, you know, temporary, these 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 successes that people have in Scientology. Anyway, the, the whole point of the clay table processing was to add another dimension to Hubbard's works and make it more real to the person and come up with other ways from their own life experiences that they could find agreement with different points of Hubbard's assertions or claims so that they would believe him when he said that communication is nothing more than cause, distance, effect with intention, attention, duplication, and understanding. And, um, you know, it's clearly got into my head because even, you know, eight years later, I still remember all that stuff pretty clearly. So um, anyway, that's what clay table processing is. Blake Nestle. I think Tim Poole puts it very well in this video, particularly about the Gelman amnesia effect, but I'll reiterate for the sake of a question format. The link is to a clip where Brian Williams and Mara Gay are discussing the amount of money Bloomberg spent on his election campaign, and a glaring mistake in basic math is made and pontificated on, at length, lamenting the nature of money in politics. If mainstream media, as Brian Williams and an editorial board member of the New York Times certainly are, can make this caliber of mistake on a concept most humans master by age eight, then how can we possibly trust them on issues of great complexity and nuance? I realize on the surface this just looks like an unfortunate gaffe. But I mean, come on, they had a graphic queued up for this with a mistake in simple long division that made it past all the vetting of MSNBC and then was repeated by an anchor that has read news for over a decade and, ironically, a person whose job in journalism is editing for one of the largest newspapers in the U.S. And I'm supposed to look to these people for accurate information and to fulfill the role of the fourth estate? Hey, Blake. All right. Well, first off, I'm the last person who's going to defend cable news or it's the accuracy thereof of these institutions because I believe that they are mainly propaganda tools at this point for whatever editorial slants or views um the highest bidder, the advertisers, or the owners of the stations want to push forward onto the public. I look at cable news now as a form of mass propaganda, not a form of mass information. So uh, I kind of am on the same page you are in terms of an attitude towards these people that is full of doubt and reservations about what their actual intentions and objectives are given the fact that they feed us a lot of half-truths and false information or very, very slanted information. Every story has a spin. Every story has some moral connected to it. And journalism kind of lost at some point, or it never really had it in the first place, and we're just sort of delusionally imagining that news used to be more objective. But I believe it did, and I think that there were rules for it. I mean, I've seen old reels of Walter Cronkite or other old famous news you know, uh, paragons giving out their daily news, and they were not emotional about it, and they didn't try to spin it, and they didn't try to add some moral foundation to what they were doing. They were telling you about the events of the world as they unfolded that day. And that's really what we need in news, which is why local news tends to be better, because it's right there on, you know, and and it has more of an effect on your day-to-day life than the national, you know, dog and pony news show that we get from you know, the federal level tends to be, and I, 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 you know, I think that's probably true across the world, but certainly I can speak to that, you know, uh, here in the United States. So I've got all kinds of criticisms of the fourth estate, as you put it, and, um, and I'm not shy about, about voicing those criticisms. At the same time, I understand the value and nature of a free press to any free society and we have to have it. If we do not have it, it then we do not have that additional check on the um, institutions of power that rule our country. And, and unchecked, those institutions will abuse us without question. And, and, and so having a, a free and open media that can kind of do what it should be doing I'm informing the public, asking difficult questions, looking into the nooks and crannies of society and reporting on what they find. Even slanted, I'd rather have that than have nothing. I I want to be super clear about that. As critical and uh, well-condemnatory as I can be about some of these news stations and and what they're doing, I will absolutely defend their existence all the way. Uh, you know, I'll take that argument all the way because um, we need them. Uh, we need them to do better, but we do need them. Okay, so that being said, let me clarify a couple things on this particular story. Some of you guys might have heard or seen some of this. Maybe some of you didn't, but Brian Williams, you know, they, they gave this whole news story and their math was completely, completely wrong. Uh, so let me, let me go over a few things, and I wrote some stuff down so I could do this accurately. First off, you mentioned this, uh, Tim Poole mentions in his video critique of this whole thing where he goes on, he talks about the Gelman amnesia effect, which you also referenced in your question. Let me clarify what that is for the the audience because it's actually not, it's just something that Michael Crichton made up. Uh, You know, Michael Crichton, the guy who wrote Jurassic Park and The Andromeda Strain and many other stories. Uh, this is quoted from uh, uh, Wikipedia, my favorite place to find stuff because it's the easiest thing for you guys to use to find stuff too. It's one of the reasons I use it because it's so easy for you guys to find it too. Uh, here's the quote: In a speech in 2002, Crichton coined the term gel man amnesia effect." So it's G-E-L-L hyphen M-A-N-N effect or amnesia effect. He used this term to describe the phenomenon of experts believing news articles on topics outside of their field of expertise, even after acknowledging that articles written in the same publication that are within the experts' field of expertise are error-ridden and full of misunderstanding. He explains the irony of the term, saying that it came about because I once discussed it with Murray Gell Mann. And by dropping a famous name, I imply greater importance to myself and to the effect than it would otherwise have." <laughs> End quote. So, Michael Crichton just made this up. This is not like an actual psychological thing, but it's something you can observe that happens sometimes. And he, and he you know, sort of called it the Gell Mann effect or amnesia effect. Um okay what you're actually seeing in play here with Brian Williams and this person from the New York Times editorial board or whatever is a couple of things. First thing that occurred to me is you're seeing you're you're seeing confirmation bias in play, okay? And this is this is a really important part of psychology to understand and I and the power of it is is mind-numbing actually how powerful this can be because it can actually alter your perceptions. And you can make stupid gaffes like Brian Williams and, and, and um, Gay made because you're not actually seeing what's in front of you. You're seeing what you think you should be seeing instead of what you're actually seeing. You have to remember that just because something's in front of your face, doesn't mean that this information, a carbon copy of it goes into your brain and is processed accordingly. That's not how this works. You will perceive what you think you should be perceiving, not necessarily what you are perceiving objectively. This is the this is how this can screw with you because it goes through various filters up here. Yeah, it's that crazy. Uh, so, this is called confirmation bias. You want to, you have a bias that you want to confirm. And in this case, you want these guys were clearly confirming that too much money was spent in politics. Bloomberg was off the rails. He was spending so much money that he could have done so much more with that money instead of wasting it on a presidential race. He was absolutely not going to win. And why was he doing this? And so there's all this bias inherent there. And then this math, this tweet comes in, and, and these guys look at it and go, oh, yeah. You know, they, do, they do whatever their little calculation is, but the calculation is based on their confirmation bias, not on the objective reality of what they see. Okay, so that's, um, you know, that's one problem, right? Um, another one that, that this falls into, and the criticism of this also falls into, is fundamental attribution error. And this is also another one of these very, very powerful, very fundamental, very basic to our way of thinking and how we form opinions in the first place. This is is how fundamental this is and and that's why it's called fundamental attribution error. And let me read to you a bit, some, some things I clipped on this so that you get what I'm talking about. The fundamental attribution error is the tendency people have to overemphasize personal characteristics, and ignore situational factors in judging others' behavior. As a simple example of the behavior which attribution error theory seeks to explain, consider the situation where Alice, a driver, is cut off in traffic by Bob. Alice attributes Bob's behavior to his fundamental personality. For example, he thinks only of himself. He's selfish. He is a jerk. He is an unskilled driver. She does not think, Alice does not think it is situational. For example, he's going to miss his flight. His wife is giving birth at the hospital. His daughter is convulsing at school. These are situations. They're not something that's just in his head. But Alice will assign all the problems to what's in his head. Consider, too, the situation where Alice makes the same mistake. She cuts somebody off, and she excuses herself by saying she was influenced by situational causes. For example, I'm late for my job interview. I must pick up my son for his dental appointment. She does not think she has a character flaw. She doesn't think she's a jerk, (laughs) right? She treats others like they're jerks. She assumes they're the jerks. And she does not look at the situation when it comes to other people with herself. She doesn't look at herself poorly. She looks at the situations of her life because she is very, very aware of those situations. You can't see the situation going on with Bob when he cuts you off in traffic. you got no idea why he did that. And so you assume why he did it. And pretty much all of us assume that it's because he's a jerk, right? We assign it to his personality. And I, you know, in this critique of Brian Williams and, and Mara Gay and this whole story that Tim Poole did, I have to cite fundamental attribution error on his part. He keeps calling these people stupid. Well, Brian Williams is a lot of things, but stupid isn't one of them. And Mara Gay is a lot of things, but stupid isn't one of them. Sean Hannity is a lot of things. But stupid isn't one of them, and yet we use that word, among many, many other personally insulting words, to describe these people all the time, because we disagree with them because of our confirmation bias, and that feeds our fundamental attribution error tendency, and so we end up talking about people in ways that have nothing to do with reality Uh, but have everything to do with how we think reality is because we make all these assumptions about people. And, you know, I am going to obviously admit that I'm at the head of the line of people who make these mistakes. So just knowing about them all by itself isn't proof against making these errors. And they are logical errors. They are problems in our ability to think rationally. And um, that's, you know, kind of a lot of what's going on with the critique of this story. So, where do we end up? Well, we end up with fallible human beings who do fallible things and make mistakes. And if we take one example of that and blow it into how can I possibly trust these people, then we ourselves are contributing to the logical fallacies of the situation because it's a one-off, it's, it is a gaff, right? It's somebody screwing up and there are reasons they screwed up. I'm explaining the psychological reasons for that. There are institutional reasons as well, you are right. All that made it through a whole bunch of people before it got onto the screen. Sometimes you might be surprised how few people <laughs> it has to go through before it goes on here. But you know, even two or three, somebody should have caught that math error. I mean, I'm not excusing that. It was, it was stupid, it was a stupid error. But that doesn't mean Brian Williams is a stupid person. You see the difference? It's a big one and it's an important one. Um, now, uh, this is why we have to, when we examine this kind of thing as a critical thinker, as a skeptic, or somebody who's using reason, we have to look at percentages. We have to, look at, we have to go to statistics then to answer the question of, because you asked me, Blake, how am I supposed to rely on these people for information? And it's a good question because in these very slanted times where we have this, you know, really, um, well, sort of I, what I like to call neon yellow journalism. Actually, this is the first time I'm saying it publicly. I came up with it a few days ago. <laughs> uh, I like to say it now. <laughs> you know, you had yellow journalism, right? The old William, Hurst, uh, William Randolph Hearst stuff. From the early 1900s, where you know you want a war, I'll give you a war, right? I'll I'll you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make the war. Um, well, now you have neon yellow journalism because it's all digital, right? Uh, but it's the same stuff, right? You still got that going on, and I you know I don't know if there's ever been a time where media hasn't had some kind of slant. But this is why you have to go to the fact checkers, and you got to look and see who's telling me the truth more often than not, and it's not like you can then just go with that one source, you have to multi-source, you have to get, you know, if you want to accurately assess a situation or information, you need multiple sources of, uh, of information about it, right, because different people have different views, different levels of expertise affect their views, and so, for example, you'd go to a doctor to find out about symptoms of coronavirus, you wouldn't go to your butcher. Okay. Um, statistically speaking, the butcher might be right sometimes, but the doctor's going to be right more often. Now, does that mean that that doctor can always be relied on for any information about anything? Well, obviously not. Can that doctor be relied on for 100% accurate information about medical things? No. Can the doctor even be relied on for 100% accurate information on the line of his specialty? No. But you will find if you were to graph statistically the accuracy of this doctor on these various points, you'd find that the graph would go like this, right? Things he doesn't know anything about, things, that, things having to do with medicine, he's going to have a higher percentage of accuracy, and things that have to do with his specialty will be much higher, but they won't be 100% because he's human. And he's going to make mistakes. He's going to make every mistake you can make. Well, news organizations are just a bunch of people at the end of the day, and you get the cumulative effect of all of their mistakes, and then you get the cumulative effect of all of the half-truths and the editorial slants where actual lies are told. This is propaganda. This is why I use that word propaganda, right? Because it's not news is, you know, news and propaganda are two different things. And where they mix, we get the mess that we have. So, where I'm going with this is that there is no one source of information that is always going to give you the accurate details of things, but there are sources of information that you can grade with fact-checking to see, right, from when when third parties objectively fact-check these sources of news, what they find, um, from what I could find, is that Fox News is the worst, and MSNBC is, you know, a little bit less. And CNN is a bit more accurate than that, okay? And you can look up these statistics and you can find them over time and check the fact checking and, you know, do, do that work for yourself. I don't, I'm not going to tell you what the, all the numbers and everything are. I'm just going to say that that was the sequence of it. And Fox News um, came out really bad. I mean, they were, they were pretty slanted stuff. But that doesn't mean CNN had their shit together either and MSNBC even less so. Um, And those are all the cable news, right? Then you got to go to local news and, you know, other countries' news and, you know, whatever. Point is, look and see what the accuracy rating for these groups and these news stations are and go with the ones that are the most accurate most of the time. And even then, sorry, but it's the world we live in that you got to fact check your news. It sucks, it's inconvenient, it's inconvenient in many, many ways at many levels, but it is the world we live in. And this is why at the, you know, the, the, I think critical thinking is so important to understanding the world we live in. And I don't really wanna pontificate, I hope I'm not coming across as pontificating here. I'm just trying to give you, you know, my view on these things and how I approach it. Um, but I, I, I'm not canceling news. I'm not saying all news sucks. I, I, think it's, I think it's pretty clear that we need the news, but we need to be critical of the news and we need to be skeptical of the news because of the world we live in, and um, that's my take on all of that. I hope that that was uh, helpful or illuminating in some fashion. Mary Ann Kirkpatrick, when you were a member in Scientology, did you disconnect, shun, or ignore people who had left Scientology before you had left? And if so, how did that play out? Also, have you reconnected with them after you left Scientology? Yes, during the course of my time in Scientology, there were a lot of people who were declared suppressive that I ended up disconnecting from because of that. They just kind of disappeared. I didn't have to do a formal disconnection. I, they, just, they were around, and then they weren't. Um, there wasn't anybody that I remember, at least not on a personal level, that I disconnected or shunned. Because um, I, I stayed in con- conne- sorry connection with my parents, despite the efforts of the church to get me to disconnect from them, they were not declared suppressive. They're still not declared suppressive, as far as I know. But they, um, they the church, did not succeed in getting me to disconnect from my family, and um, and I don't remember any close friends. I mean, I'm, there were definitely there definitely were some. But I haven't reconnected with them since, so I'm, you know, so some of those just kind of fade into the past a bit, unfortunately. Um, I have reconnected with a lot of people who left Scientology before I did, and I didn't even know. <laughs> and then I reconnected with them, and I was like, oh, you're out too, woo! You know, and then we're friends again, or we're at least connections socially, and we, and we interact. So, so that's been fun and interesting and cool. Unfortunately, um, you know, some of the people who have come out of Scientology, uh, stopped working for Scientology, came out of the Sea Org uh, even, are still Scientologists. They still hold on to the, the, to the mindset and so they won't reconnect with me. And I think, I think my name is automatically on block lists now from the church because I don't even have to interact with certain people to find out I'm already blocked by them on social media old friends of mine. I mean, people that I've been waiting to come out of the Sea Org have come out and they still won't talk to me because they're still in the Scientology headspace. And, you know, I hope at some point that that will change. There are people I really desperately would love to reconnect with who won't, you know, respond to any of my messages or give me the time of day um, because they're still in the Scientology headspace. So, um, But reconnecting with the people who have been willing to, you know, who have gotten out of Scientology, that's been cool. And that's been uh, a lot of fun. Ah! Okay, it is time for Flash Answers. Adria VZ Halub. Was Hawaii considered part of the West U.S. when you were in the Sea Org? If so, did you get to go there for Sea Org business? Yes, it is, and yes, I did. I actually went to Hawaii three times on missions uh, in the Sea Org, Uh, one of them back in 96, and the others much, much, much later, uh, I think after 2010, after I got off the RPF and was doing recruitment and stuff, I went out there a couple times. Uh, no, I went out there one time, and I went out there another time on a different mission when I was still in management. Yeah, that's how it went. So two management missions and then a recruitment mission. I went out there to Hawaii. Beautiful place. Oh, my God. I was only on Honolulu. The, uh, that's where the org is, uh, the Scientology org. It's a tiny, tiny podunk place. I mean, barely keeping the doors open there. There are hardly any Scientologists in Hawaii, and um, yeah, anyway, it's actually one of the oldest orgs, though. Uh, somebody went out to Hawaii a long, I think it was in the 60s, and opened it as one of the, was one of the, the first uh, orgs out there, maybe even in the 50s, I don't remember exactly, but it's been around for a long time, but tiny little place. Hawaii, <laughs> gorgeous. I'd go back to Hawaii anytime, but I did not get a lot of free time. There was a little bit of time on the beach. Uh, when I was there, but most of it was spent in the org. Pat, enjoying your book. I listened to it at work on Audible. I have a question. There's a picture of the Sea Org with David Miscavige and around 40 Sea Org members in the background. How many of those people left, or are most of them still involved? Questions like this I really can't answer because I don't know all those people. I was never at the int base and I um, didn't call around to find out what the answer to this question was. I just don't know. Um, I'm imagining that probably quite a few of those people from 40 years ago are no longer around. In fact, I'd say probably as an educated guess, most of them aren't. But I don't know. Adam. Adam. I don't know if this has been answered before, but I would like to know if it is only people below OT levels that get sent down the bridge to repeat things because of errors. I know this is part of the big plan to squeeze every last penny out of people. I just wondered if there was a cutoff point, or is everybody a target? Is this done to some celebrity Scientologists as well? Adam, this is done on everybody at every level, no matter who they are, including celebrities. When the mid-2000s, when the non-clear thing came down, there were people who were OT8, who had to go back to the ship to go clear again or to go to flag to do that. There were people who were at the level of uh, clear who were told they weren't clear. There were OTs who were told they weren't clear. There are now OT8s who have had to go back and redo their purification rundowns, their objectives, all the way back down to the bottom of the bridge, no matter where they were. So no, it was uh, was an equal opportunity uh, money grab. Okay, that is our show for this week, folks. Thanks for listening to me ramble on here. I really appreciate your viewership and support, and I hope you will consider supporting me. You know, we're about to run into through some pretty lean times, and I know that things are going to get rough, and I really hope that I don't lose a bunch of you guys during this uh, crisis situation. I'm actually honestly a little worried about that, um, but, you know, I'm going to do what I can here, and uh, we're all going to do what we can. I just hope that my content is helpful and useful or at least entertaining in some fashion through this. And I hope that you will take advantage of the resources on my channel to maybe, you know, watch a few things you haven't had time to watch up until now. There's a lot of content on here, and I, you know, I, I like most of it, and I hope you do too. That all being said, thanks for coming around and watching, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.